I mean, looking back, even in, you know, you're not that old, so you, you know, and you know, looking back 10 years, and I look back you know, many more years than that, and you see tremendous changes. It was so uh, daunting to try to do anything with the mainstream art world. I just felt like I would not fit. I'm not going to survive this. I'm not going to live in the beautiful place that I can imagine in my head, but I will die trying, you know? I will die trying because I believe in us, and I know that we will survive this. Hello, and welcome to Articulated. I'm Liza Kerwin, Interim Director of the Archives of American Art. And I'm Ben Gillespie, the Arlene and Robert Kogod Secretarial Scholar for Oral History. Support for this podcast comes from the Alice L. Walton Foundation. Since 1958, oral history at the archives has been a vital method for preserving the voices of the visual arts in the United States. While oral histories take on a variety of forms, we conceive of art interviews as complete life stories as we invite individuals to share the full range of their experiences, insights, and wisdom. Over the years, we've conducted more than 2,500 oral histories with artists, curators, scholars, and more. And each interview allows the subjects to tell their own stories in their own words. In this episode, we will explore moments from interviews that reflect the power, challenges, spirit, and limits of oral history. The first major oral history initiative at the archives began in the early 1960s with a concerted effort to collect the stories of the New Deal. The effort yielded nearly 400 interviews with the artists, administrators, and more who had made good on the largest infrastructure investment in American history. One star whose career was catapulted by New Deal work was Dorothea Lange, a major figure in 20th century photography. Her 1964 oral history covers her entire career from the New Deal and beyond. Here's how she responded to interviewer Richard Dowd when he asked about contemporary influences in her work. No, nothing, nothing. I, I later saw the connection, as now I see connection mm-hmm. between what I do and other people do. I understand their work, but I, I, uh, it may sound uh, like an immensely egotistical thing to say, but I don't, I don't, I'm not aware photographically of having been influenced by anyone. That's I'm not aware of that. That's very interesting. Yeah. And particularly in uh, Perhaps case, I would have done better had I been, but I, I haven't uh, now either. It's, uh-huh. it's my own handwriting and my own sometimes Sometimes it's a very weak statement uh, that I make about something, but I always have the feeling it's mine. It, it isn't anyone's that I got from anyone's else. That's why it's very easy for me to enjoy other people's work I see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as much as I do. Sort of look at it with fresh eyes, then, yes. if you feel it. Yes, I yeah. feel that. I don't say I'm highly original, but after all these years of work, I have a certain well, a, a certain, not exactly a style, but a tonality that I recognize as my own. Now I begin to recognize it. I'll say, well, there's a line for you. I'll show you one. I just did one that I know is 
good. But it's only lately that I begin to recognize this quality. People have told me about it, but I didn't. I thought, well, this is more of this, mm -hmm. you know. As the Arabs say, kalus, 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 kalus. I mean, talk, 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 talk. <laughs> no, I think other people certainly could recognize the line. They tell me so, but I couldn't. Mm -hmm. Now I begin to be able to. To hear more stories from the New Deal and how it indelibly shaped American culture, go back to episodes one through four on this season of Articulated. Oral histories offer us the chance to hear creators as they dig into the bedrock of their work. Here's Maya Lin, the architect and artist who designed the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C., on the impetus for that work of public commemoration and mourning in her 1983 oral history. I just started imagining, you know, what, what is a war? What is, what is death? It's a very painful loss. And the idea of, like, it's an initial violence, like a wound, that heals over with time, like a scar, but is never quite forgotten. You can never quite forget someone you've loved who has died. And so the idea of actually making a cut into the earth, taking a knife, and just opening up the earth, the initial violence of the war, and then let time and the grass heal it over. And then the whole idea of the black granite comes from if you take like a geode, you take a stone and you cut it, and then you polish its edge. These interviews are also opportunities for artists to explain their influences, methods, and techniques within the holistic scope of their careers. In 1989, I had the chance to interview Dwayne Hansen, a sculptor known for his hyper-realistic human figures that mirror the absurdity of the everyday in our lives. I've always been struck by the sense of melancholy I found in his work, and here's how he explained it. I mean, looking back, even in, you know, you're not that old, so you, you know, and you know, looking back 10 years, and I look back you know, many more years than that, and you see tremendous changes. Mm -hmm. Like my 97-year-old um, aunt, I asked her what it was like to see the first car, you know, at the turn of the century. And she said it was a little red car and just weren't hard, hardly any roads, just little trails and it was a red car and I could hear it coming five miles away with puck, 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 puck. And then just think of, uh, in her lifetime, there was radio, and then, and then there came radio and then there came uh, television and, and you know, then there came cars all over. I mean, just didn't, didn't want of course, that's a long life. Mm -hmm. But even our shorter lives, we look back, and uh, I remember when I saw my first television set. I mean, hardly anybody had them. Now everybody's got them. And then we're all black. And then a few years ago, nobody had color TV. You know, now everybody's got it. And they're usually little ones. And now, you know, like my this big one, and they come out with better models all the time. That's just the technology, of course. And then you look at the environment and you know what that was like. You could, uh, I was a kid, we could uh, go out and pick these little strawberries in the woods in Minnesota. I don't think you'd find any anymore. Mm -hmm. And here in Florida, I noticed when we moved in that house next door in 1973, in the winter they had these little colored birds would come and, and I have a bird feeder or a little place there where they come and set these buntings. Mm -hmm. I think they're called colored, colored buntings or something. And they had red breasts and little green 
wings. I haven't seen them now for about 10 years. I don't see any birds around here anymore that, that migrate through. That's the blue jays and they're just here all the time. Mm. And you say, well, so what? You can live without them. But it, as years go on, there's a whole, you can see something, you can tell something's wrong. That, you know, they, it's such a joy to see a little bird like that. And there were other kinds. There was another kind of bird, a black bird, that my neighbor said was very uh, rare and had kind of a rounded off beak. I don't see them anymore. Mm-hmm. And a lot of other little little tiny birds used to creep all over the orange trees. They're not here. So when you think think back, even a few years how it was, and you can imagine what's going to be ten years from now. That's a side part of it. And that's just you know that's just the environment and then mm-hmm. you know the other other problems, mm-hmm. population, and all that. So these issues weigh heavily on your figures. Pardon? These issues about well, I think technology everybody technology change, uh, climate, ecology, climate. Yeah. Uh, this is something. I mean, we don't like. To, I mean, we don't talk about it, but we know it's there. Mm-hmm. You know, and we, we every day on television is something or in the paper, little by little. You know, and I. And I have the tendency to turn off, and I think everybody says, oh, I don't want to hear about that anymore. But it's there, mm-hmm. and it's in our mind, and uh, uh, we can be happy, but we still have to think of our children and uh, future years. Mm-hmm. You know, what's going to happen to this planet if we don't wake up? So I guess that's some of it, that I just, yeah. that comes intuitively, you know. Mm-hmm. I just don't, don't try to stress it and make it more than it is because it's a heavy burden for us all. Mm-hmm. And then uh, so much of the world just goes on like like nothing's ever gonna, gonna end. It's always gonna be like it is today. Interviews provide the space for narrators to reflect on their formative influences and the state of the art world. In his 1988 interview with Judd Tully, painter Paul Cadmus glossed his relation to art history and how he understood his own practice and its bounds. My limitations are that I only like the kind of painting that is it is in that tra- in, in our, what I call our tradition. I mean, it's not our tradition, but it's the tradition that we've would like to be connected with. And those are the only paintings I really like. I mean, I can admire other paintings. Henry James once described New York City as big, bad, bold beauty. And I think some pictures are big, bad, bold beauties, but I don't care for them. Mm-hmm. And my limitations are that I'm interested in delicacy and refinement, especially in technique. I mean, especially in uh, handling of paint. I don't like anything that's coarsely done. I mean, I can appreciate Van Gogh, who's painting mm-hmm. his course. I mean, mm-hmm. No doubt about it, about it. But it's one, it's wonderful. But I don't love it, as I love Ang, as I love Poussin, as I love the Italian Renaissance painters. Mm-hmm. Signorelia, who is my great favorite, of course, is not is a rather bold painter because, but he was a fresco painter. I don't care for his oils particularly, and and my limitations are, I think, are quite obvious. A lot of people would think I'm a very limited artist. How though? I mean, I mean, 
I think it's so clear that <laughs> well, I mean, every artist is limited to his own mm-hmm. to his own style, mm-hmm. and uh, my subject matter is not as limited as some artists. I think I think I've, I've uh, there's more variety in the pictures I've done. I I can't remember how I said that when I, when I was I think I was painting a doing a a, a, a little uh, exhibition of how egg painting is done in the movie when I mm-hmm. said that. But I, I don't know how I can explain it any more clearly than I, than I am limited. Well, I suppose what I was meaning... Well, well, then I went on from that, too, mm-hmm. to explain that probably that most artists do have limitations. I think perhaps Tolstoy had very few, mm-hmm. but certainly Ronald Furbank, I don't know what I continued on, but they, they probably didn't continue that quote in the book, but it's in the movie. Mm-hmm. That Ronald Furbank was limited to his uh, limited to his limitations. I mean, and in fact, it was very hard to criticize Ronald Furbank. I think Forster, in an essay, said, "You can't, you can't break break a butterfly on a Catherine's wheel. It's just too delicate." A great image. I'm not a butterfly. <laughs> I'm not comparing myself to. Influence also comes from family, community, and teachers. Joyce Scott, a mixed media artist based in Baltimore, described the significance of her parents and heritage for her work during her 2009 oral history. Well, my mother told me that she was considered a bit different as a quilt maker because she didn't like to stick to the old-fashioned designs. And when everybody did crazy quilts, her quilts were always just a little crazier than everyone else's. And that kind of improvisational skill, that kind of real kind of dense storytelling all wrapped up in love and all all of the other things that happen when you are a child living under this kind of gross pressure of the South, being a have-not, the racism. I mean, I really think about the kind of work that she makes and how glorious it is when I think about her youth, where you were afraid to, you don't have running water, and if you don't have a well that's super close, you're afraid to go get the elixir of life water. You're picking cotton and you're being bitten by the very things, but you can't not pick cotton because that's how your family has livelihood to live. This is, this is a, we don't know this. We don't really know this. But that informed then the house that we lived in. You know, I, my, my father picked tobacco. He came from, I think, eight kids maybe. My mother's darker skin, my father's lighter skin. His travails here were at Bethlehem Steel. I didn't hear this until maybe two years before my godfather, who also worked at Bethlehem Steel, who was darker skin, told me the story. Wale, who was my godfather, who was a Pentecostal preacher, I did street ministry with he and his wife, who's my godmother, Liz. So it's Wyatt Brown and Lucille Brown. I'm on the street playing the tambourine with them while we're doing street ministry. I told them I was sure that they were responsible for a few of my emotional problems later in my life. But until he passed away, he would drive me to the airport because I was traveling around the United States speaking and teaching. And he told me this story driving. Remember, this all goes back to everything I talk in circles. He said, you know, you're a white girl. And I said, wait a second, back up. (laughs) What do you mean? He said, well, people are 
not appreciated, but they're designated by their skin color. And your having education makes you a certain kind of person in our culture. Said, well, but you know, I I understand what you're saying, but I'm still that little Joyce. He said, yes, you are. And then he started telling me a story about what he meant. While oral histories center the narrator, or interviewee, they are conversations that rely on the space that interviewer and narrator hold together. In 2017, interviewer Ted Kerr and narrator Julie Alt discussed some of the nuances of that dynamic. But I'm always surprised uh, during some oral histories, um, some of the people auditing the clips have said how much they mean to them. So I, I, mm-hmm. I forgot to think that the audience is also everyone involved in the production. Right. And I think, I mean, that's what I probably haven't thought about who, because mostly I'd like it to be a meaningful conversation in the present tense for uh-huh. us and draw things out and, and you know, achieve some kind of contextualization and bringing together of information, memory, atmosphere of the what I imagine to be the times that you're going to be asking me questions about. But, I mean, first of all, I just think it has to be, it has to be um, meaningful for me and for you. Mm-hmm. And everything else is gravy, mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, because if it is, then it will be, it will build a constituency. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that this program of important oral histories has a constituency already and will keep building one. So... To add to that is, is, you know, an important thing that I take really seriously. What I appreciate about um, the process with you up until now is that you've been very clear, and I, excited isn't the right word, but maybe, um, yeah, clear about stuff that you were interested in me knowing about mm-hmm. um, and checking in about that. And I, I think that's a really good, that was meaningful for me. Mm-hmm. That's good, yeah. Yeah. Was it different than how you begin sort of some of the other... Or you would begin a, a conversation like this usually? Somewhat, yeah. I think, you know, if I think about the interviews that I've done for this project specifically, some people have been very, I've been very, one or two people have been very close to me and I know their work and mm-hmm. them very well. And so that was about thinking about, like, what, what do I know that I take for granted? Mm-hmm. Like, how do I approach this? with with all the knowledge I have in my heart and mind. Mm-hmm. And then with people that I'd never met before, and I was familiar with everybody to a degree. Right. So with people that I was familiar with to a degree, it was kind of parsing through what what are the what are the things that I need to go into the interview knowing so that they feel right. that they're going to be that that I respect and honor what we're here to talk about. Mm-hmm. And what things is just like actually let that come out if it comes out. But no one was as, um, I would say, helpful and clear about the things that mm-hmm. that would be good for me to know beforehand. That's good. You know, I mean, I didn't want to give you too much, but I, you know, I'm aware of the problematic of coming to a conversation, and I don't want to fall into 
just stating facts that can be found in other places. And the general subject terrain, or what I expect to be the subject terrain of our conversation, is something that has been a layer, or sometimes in the foreground, sometimes in the background, for a long time in my work. So, and the collective work and, and, you know, work that I've done individually. And so I feel like that's a good starting point. Not that you have to know all of it. But otherwise, you know, we, we don't use our valuable time necessarily. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we, we're dipping in without having a grounding or something. So I like to think of it more as, um, in general, maybe a more guided curatorial than mm-hmm. a cafeteria style, taking some of this, taking some of that. Uh-huh. And I wasn't, I'm not aware, like, to what degree you've prepared or, are you, in quotes, supposed to prepare or not? You know, mm-hmm. because I know the oral history is so much about the, I mean, traditionally it's so much about the person giving the oral history and that the interviewer recedes a bit in that or is not, you know, as as much of a figure. And so that's why I felt like I have, and I, I didn't know your work, but mm-hmm. I looked up a little bit before. Mm-hmm. And then you sent me some things which were helpful, mm-hmm. and unfortunately I didn't get to read them all. But um, but it's helpful to have a grounding, you know. I also you said something that uh, is something that I think a lot about with these oral histories is like uh, for some people HIV/AIDS is something they think about every day, mm-hmm. maybe all day, and for other people it was a period of their life or it is a period of their life that that can be discreet. Mm-hmm. And I always want to make space for people to show up in relationship to HIV AIDS, how they want to show up. Is right. it is it something that's constant or is it something? Right. No, I think that's good because also if someone's agreed already to do the oral or to be part of the project, the oral history project, then there's a willingness. And it sounds like you're making a space for it to be on their terms, which is, which is good. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. it's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. These stories also give first-hand accounts of community and belonging. Carmen Lomas Garza, a painter from California and key figure in the Chicano art movement, talked about how she carved out her own niche in her 1997 interview with Paul Carlstrom. Well, I was always uh, looking towards other Chicano artists, other Mexican-American artists, for, for influence, for inspiration, for information, for technique for camaraderie, for support. And, and most of the time it was from, from uh, Chicano artists because that's who there was more of. There was very, very few Chicano artists. And it, and it seemed to me that the Chicano artists were much more uh, forceful and aggressive in what they were doing and, and you know, much more um, bent on achieving their goals as artists. So I, I made friends with a lot of Chicano artists in, in Texas and then over here in, in California. If you look at my resume, um, the more important exhibitions that I've been in have been curated by Chicanos that somehow or other ended up doing guest curating for an institution or were curators for a certain length of time. And then women, you know, white women who were also uh, curators in, in curatorial positions or, or were in education department positions where they were given the opportunity to curate exhibitions. So I have benefited mm-hmm. greatly, you know, from, from uh, both from the feminist art movement putting pressure on the institutions and the, the, the Chicano 
movement putting pressure on institutions? Well, um, it was so uh, daunting to try to do anything with the mainstream art world. I just felt like I would not fit. And then I also had this need to to feel my obligation to, to my community and also within the Chicano art movement and the Chicano movement that I felt that I need to develop my own audience. You know, there was this group of people that were not being, um, that were not getting artwork in, in their lives and could be served with, with my artwork. So I started developing my audience. And they also bear witness to history in flux. Here's Juana Alicia, a muralist in San Francisco, speaking in 2000. You know, it brings up the issue of, um, like, sort of a generational thing that, that happens, whether it's, you know, from our generation to our children's generation or whatever. Um, in this country, particularly around, say, the struggles of the civil rights movement. And, um, you know, a certain level of taking for granted uh, rights that we had to struggle for earlier on. And I do believe we're born with rights and that our, these are not privileges, they're rights, you know, that, that we uh, should have autonomy over our bodies. We, we have the right to autonomy over our bodies. We have the right, you know, to housing and a safe life and a education and good health care and all those things are inalienable rights everywhere on the planet. And uh, there are places where people have to struggle a lot harder to claim them than they do in places where there's a long history of that struggle or a history of that struggle where certain advances have been made. Yeah, some things are taken for granted in contemporary feminism in terms of like having the vote, you know, um, certain levels of security, but I think it's very tenuous, very fragile. And you look at, see what's happening with the Taliban or, you know, in, in different parts of the world where women's rights have been ripped away. Or if you, if you read Margaret Atwood and, and you read, uh, you know, what's that one about uh, the future? Uh, where the, handmaid, handmaid. the Handmaid's Tale, right? I don't think we're that far away from that. Oral histories can teach us about the past while remaining grounded in the present. Kay Walkingstick, a Cherokee painter based in Pennsylvania, told Mija Riedel about the substance, vitality, and elegiac nature of her work in relation to Native history during her 2011 oral history. I've done some paintings, and I actually did an object, that are about um, uh, the genocide that happened here. And there was a kind of genocide that occurred here, and not a quite as um, efficient as what on, went on in Germany, but uh, nor as um, politically determined. But it, it, there was a kind of genocide that went on here, and it was mostly about land grab. Mm -hmm. You know, it was mostly about real estate. 
But the um, the rich party that I, I talked about, I, I stop me if I'm giving you too much history, but that happened. The the rich assassination uh, happened because the tribe was split up, and part of the tribe blamed Ridge for their being moved, the the, uh, the Cherokees being moved mm-hmm. to uh, Oklahoma. And part of the tribe stayed in the south, and part went west, and, and Ridge led it and then was blamed for it. And that was highly politicized. Oh, Jackson himself was involved in that, you know, Andy Jackson. He's the one that put the, the final stamp on the removal. The, uh, it was voted down by the uh, Senate, and he vetoed it. And then, so, anyway. uh, so highly politicized um, history. Yeah. Uh, and um, I did a, a piece, um, I don't own it anymore, but I think it's in this. Um, so when you do paintings about, you know, bear paw, you don't consider those social or political? Oh, absolutely, in a historical way. Yeah, yeah. But not in a, I don't, I don't think, see them as political in a, in today's politics, right. they have to do with the history yeah. of our country. Right. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. But this is called Where are the Generations? And right. Um, this is ninety one, I think, isn't it? This is yeah. you know, absolutely. It's about the it's about the uh, uh, Columbus quincentenary mm-hmm. and the and the genocide. Mm-hmm. I can't quote it too for you now. But anyway. Yes. Yes, there's a poem that went with yeah. that. Uh, in, in 1492, there were two, 20 million of us. Now there are two. Where are the children? Where are the generations never born? The um, uh, population growth was, is greater uh, in third world countries um, with all their disease and all their problems than it has been among uh, Native Americans. Mm-hmm. It's the lowest uh, population growth mm-hmm. because they were decimated. Mm-hmm. I still find that very upsetting. Mm-hmm. After all these years of dealing with it, mm-hmm. I can I still get really upset talking about it. And does that continue to inform your work, do you think? I, not really. Not in that. Not in that way. I had to stop making those things about the quincentenary because I, I just couldn't bear it any longer. Uh, I made a um, a sort of a little sculpture of a, a funerary uh, scaffold mm-hmm. uh, in leather. And um, what else did I made? I made a a book that opened up that uh, told about the massacre at Wounded Knee and. Um, it was uh, just too many things to deal with, and I just stopped, just stopped making them. And I, you know, these are, they do have a political input in that they are, you know, a statement of who we are. I've done a lot of paintings about the fact that we're all still here. I mean, we're only two million, but we're still here. And most people think that the Indians are all gone. And... Um, they're not. <laughs> They're not. Mm-hmm. So that idea has been prevalent in a lot of the works that I've done. Mm-hmm. And I think these these are still about that notion of we're still here. It's still our land. You may own it, farm it, live on it, 
but it's still our land. This is where we really come from. In 2020, the Archives embarked upon the Pandemic Oral History Project, a series of 85 short-form interviews to document the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on the visual arts of the United States. It marked a new frontier in oral history for us, capturing a historical moment as the world spun. While oral histories recount what's past, they also give us opportunities to imagine the future. Here's Chinupa Hanskalugu. Amandan Hidatsa Arikara Lakota ceramicist based in New Mexico, in conversation with Josh T. Franco. So in the last little wrap up here, what do you want to tell the artists in a hundred years about what it was like to be an American artist in 2020? Yeah, um, well, there was a place called America. I want to start <laughs> <with> that. <laughs> and uh, it was an experiment. You know, um, it was an experiment that had, uh, that was desperate. It was a desperate experiment and, um, and it was built on a lot of brutality and, and, but a lot of that brutality was, was learned. America was an experiment to, to try to alleviate all of that, that pressure and that tension, but hurt people hurt people and 2020 we were really taking a hard close look at the effect of that on on each other and on the environment um and you know hopefully you're living in the in the the calm after the wake of this moment in a hundred years but i don't I, i i think it took about 500 years to get to the place that we are and i don't expect change to happen radically overnight um, I think it takes time, and like any good aspect of of community and society, um, there should be consensus developed rather than majority rule. And consensus takes time. So you know, at this point in history, I, I think it's important that we begin to talk to one another and actually use all of the incredible technology that we have to to develop a, a, a better protocols for communication. We're not. I'm not going to survive this. I'm not going to live in the beautiful place that I can imagine in my head, but I will die trying. You know, I will die trying because I believe in us and I know that we will survive this. Thank you for joining us in celebrating more than 60 years of the Oral History Program. We look forward to preserving and amplifying the voices of American art for 60 more years. To learn more about the oral history program at the Archives of American Art, visit our website at aaa.si.edu. For show notes, works cited, and additional resources, visit aaa.si.edu slash articulated. This podcast is produced by Ben Gillespie and Michelle Herman from the Smithsonian Archives of American Art. It was edited by Hannah Hethman of Better Lemon Creative Audio. Our music comes from Sound and Smoke, composed by Viet Quang and performed by the Peabody Wind Ensemble with Harlan Parker conducting. 
Special thanks to Liza Kerwin for narrating this episode. The Archives of American Art at the Smithsonian Institution is a nonprofit organization that relies on donations from individuals like you to sustain our ongoing operations and special programs like Articulated. To support our work, please visit our website, aaa.si.edu support. Thank you.